This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Carol Mislowski. She has lived most of the history of her family's century-old farm in Westerlow. Her father, Clayton Barber, sheared sheep and brought his thresher to neighboring farms as everyone pulled together. Over time, the farm changed as her father replaced her grandfather's plow horses with a tractor. In the 1980s, the family started a farm day tradition at the end of harvest, where they would travel around the farm on a wagon and make plans for the coming year. Although all five of Carol's daughters are professionals, she said, and didn't want to stay on the farm, they return with her 11 grandchildren for farm day and share memories. I describe for us so people that haven't seen the beauty of that place just tell us what the farm looks like the lay of the land some of the buildings that are there it's on the right on Woodstock Road it's uh sits off about 100 feet off the road and it had in, in years past before foliage took over it had a beautiful view of the Catskill Mountains. We could see Wyndham ski trails and you could see all down through there and on a clear day we were always told you could see Vermont to the to the east and you and before foliage overtook too we could see down and right through down into the village of Westerlo and uh it's um, like I said now. Now it's 108 acres, about, but before it was 118, and it uh, was on both sides of the road. But uh, presently, there's only about 11 acres on the east side of the road that's retained to the farm, and uh, a lot of the buildings have come down for over 100 years. My my grandfather, of course, it was an outhouse, and that's gone, and there was an ice house. And that's gone. And there were milk houses and chicken houses. And uh, my father, my grandfather, Barber, uh, William Fisher Barber, he was uh, the local furrier in the day back in the early 1900s. And uh, that building was the old sap house where we made maple syrup. But now that that got so that if we sat in the sap house, the wind blew right through the building and we were afraid of being take, swept away. So we tore that down. And uh, But it's uh, still a beautiful view and a very peaceful property. People comment when they come to get hay and things how peaceful. But a peaceful property it is, looking over the pond and things like that. And there's still an old farmhouse there, right, from the 1800s. Is that still there? Oh, the farm. Oh, yeah, this farmhouse is there, and the barn. We know that the barn, the barn granary wall, where they used to keep track of their thrashing grains, um, the barn wall says 1860. There's a marking, but we don't know exactly beyond that. Um, Deed wise or anything, we the farthest back the the farthest back that we see in the deed is eighteen eighty, but there's a marking in the there's a marking on the barn that says eighteen sixty. So. Yeah, Civil War era, isn't that something? So now that you, we have like a sense of the land and its beauty, let's talk a little about the people. Um, if we could go back through the generations, you mentioned that your grandfather was mm-hmm. a farrier, you know, shotting horses, which I'm assuming, I think I remember your father telling me that your grandfather always worked the land with horses, right? He didn't, yes, he yes, didn't yes. have a tractor. He, I think, 
I think in a previous article that you wrote, Melissa, um, my father quoted the fact that my grandfather, his father, didn't want to ever have a tractor because they were too fast for him. He wanted to stick with the horses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yes, in 18, and December 6th, December 6th of um, 1920, um, it was my father's third birthday. And he doesn't have he didn't have a lot of that memory, but he did remember the move. They were previously had been living on Westwood Stock Road, which is over by South Burn, on what is now the Bushnell property. And they moved to this house and the farm on December sixth. And he remembered coming with a horse and the sleigh wagon. And he they had given him a kitten for his birthday. And they had the heat heat blocks under the heated blankets and everything. And they came over and it was kind of stormy and the cat jumped off the wagon and they never found the cat and he remembered that part of that was his memory of the moving day oh, but anyway they yeah they moved they moved here like i say and uh december 6th the deed reads the uh, I think it's January January 10th or 11th because back in the day, you understand, they didn't just hop in their car and go to Albany to the courthouse. They they did their paperwork, and then when they got like a birth certificate or anything that had to be filed in Albany, they they sometimes didn't do it right away. So, but that's when they moved here, December 6th, 1920, 19, uh, and. Uh, then my grandfather was they were it was a self-sustaining farm my grandfather sustained his wife and my father and they had a, a daughter later on and uh, they were self-sufficient with most everything and then my father my grandfather William Fisher Barber and Florence was his wife they uh, he was the trustee of the local schoolhouses there were like seven of them I guess up here on the hill I'm not sure what they called the district then, but I do have a book that showed where he, he hired teachers and he paid them. And uh, some some of the entries were that the teacher got room and board for $6 a month. Oh, <laughs> and, gosh. Uh, and, but he was that, and he was very active in his faith. He was a deacon in his church at different times, and my dad always told how Never did any work take place on the farm on Sunday other than feeding the cattle and milking the cows. And my grandfather spent many a day, and especially Sundays, on the front porch reading his Bible and, and uh, growing in his faith. And then when my father started getting older, um, he was born, like I say, he was three when they moved here. So my father always had a dream of getting a tractor. He'd look through magazines and the catalogs, and he always wanted two things that he loved was the, the tractors and airplanes. And uh, he ended up having both, an ultralight airplane, but he uh, he sustained his family as well. He he uh, never dreamed too big, but he always lived on the basis of pay for it when you get it and don't go in debt. And it served him well. And uh, he raised us four, us four, uh, us four girls. And uh, he ended up having some, some um, pleasures out of it too. And he had the, he <clears throat> had the landing strip. I believe you did that article yourself. Melissa, yes. We don't want to skip over that too quickly because this is so remarkable. <laughs> the reason I met your father was mm -hmm. because I'd heard from people saying, you know, there's this farmer that flies overhead. <laughs> and yeah, I said, yeah. what? 
And I went up to meet him, and I just couldn't believe it. He told me that when he was a boy, um, I think he said around 10 years old, um, his parents had bought him, you know, for school, uh, like a notebook that had a picture on the cover. And it was a picture of the spirit of St. Louis, you know, Charles Lindbergh's plane. And so this was in 1927, and he just... That always stayed with him, this idea of freedom and flying. And here he is, this farm boy in Westerlo dreaming of flying. And then, as you just said, you know, he only would buy things he could pay for. And he saved and saved and saved. And he was really quite an old man by the time he got his Mirage Ultralight. And you know, he uh, he he loved flying, and and God always he always felt God led him to where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be doing when he did it. And one of the big one of his big helps was uh, the Haney Company. Dwight Haney always let him come over there and fly. They had private Cessnas and, and Piper Cubs and whatever brands they all were, and. Uh, Dad flew from the from the west of the Haney landing strip, and he flew from Dwaynesburg a lot. There was a man, he's Bill Simmons. He's um, passed, of course, but he let him fly up there a lot too. And yep, there was he had a lot of he he got his life yearnings got satisfied. He he was always happy. He always he he when he passed, he was a happy man for what he had accomplished. You know, yep. yeah. but he did love his airplanes. Well, I remember. <laughs> watching him fly because I went up to see how he did it and he had the plane in the barn and he was very yeah. very precise about it I mean he was a he was very precise he was very precise about the barn but let me tell or about the plane but let me tell you when my husband wanted to help him build a little hangar to put it under for protection and uh, my husband got out his square and his level and his circular saw and everything and my father came out of one of the barn buildings with his chainsaw <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Oh, he said we don't need to be too exact with that." He said, the, "He said this will do good." And he started sawing ash poles and, and different limbs from trees. And uh, but you know what? It's stood for almost twenty years. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, isn't that a great story? Well, what? I, yeah, what I was going to say was, you know, he took his shoelaces and he tied down his pant legs, and he just, yeah. you know, it was kind yeah. of a. A thin man, and I, I felt he was very safe. Yeah, he was safety minded. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. and when he got mm-hmm. in that plane, it just like his whole—you could feel his spirit lifting. You know, he just—he just, he just yeah. exuded exuded radiance, and it was—it was, it was well, just an was- experience to watch him do that. And that reflects back to, to like I said, with my grandfather, William Fisher Barber, and, and my father, heritage passes down through. They never went in debt for anything, and they made do with what they have. And in the same time, they took care of what they had. And like you say, with Tyan, he, he was aware that if he's up in the air and that wind got up under his suit thing there, it could kind of shift him off the seat and things like that. You know, yeah, so he was, yeah. he was always very safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he was just remarkable. And mm-hmm. one of the passages that I just thought captured him, and you certainly would know, tell me, you know, the Laura Ingalls Wilder's books, she wrote 
Farmer Boy. And she wrote, a farmer depends on himself and the land and the weather. If you're a farmer, you raise what you eat, you raise what you wear, and you keep warm with wood out of your own timber. You work hard, but you work as you please. And no man can tell you to come or go. You'll be free and independent, son, on a farm. And did, yeah. did that seem to ring true for your father? Yeah, I mean, that summarizes my father's era on the farm very well. He he was self sufficient for a lot of things. He when he was shipping the milk with the cows. Um, my childhood memory of that is he would get a milk check the first of every month, and if it, if the milk had had a lot more butter fat in it, we got a bigger check, so we could go to Montgomery Ward and go to the bargain floor and pick up what we needed. And if the check was real big, we could go across the street to the White Tower and get a hamburger. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, isn't that great? But our main main entertainment on the farm during the 50s and 60s were on Saturday when he was doing hay in the summer. Of course, there was no electronic machinery and no no hay kickers or any, you know, everything was by hand. The bales dropped on the ground and our Saturday night entertainment would be how high can you throw a bale of hay on a wagon? And you know what? I got up to six tiers. <laughs> you got up to six tiers? Oh my that, gosh. That was, but that was our, that was our life. You know, you didn't, you didn't get out your computers and all that, but that's another era too. So no, it was uh, my father. My father, when he took over the farm, I guess I'm ahead of myself a little bit. He, my grandfather, well, first of all, my mother and father got married in 1940, and they lived in the back part of that house up there. And then they had a daughter in 1943, and then, right, no, 1943, and then... They lived and shared the farm with my father and grandfather. And then in 1950-ish, <laughs> I was born, and they knew they needed more of the house by then. And my, my grandparents um, moved to Unionville and turned the farm over to my father. So then that began. I knew my father got a tractor, and he did different things to improve the property, but he wanted to carry on, of course. And then... Uh, he farmed it until he he farmed it and did all all of that maple syruping and the farming and he was the local thrasher too he um he was one of the fewer people on the hill at that time that had a combine and uh back in the day they bartered a lot of times you do this i do that type thing and uh my father kind of had the reputation of being the sheep shearer of the hill and thrasher he would go as far as reedsville uh, yes and rensselville and down by south by um down by uh, is that 401 down below where the moran's garage is now he would go that all that loop around there he did a lot of the thrashing for the people and uh then he made the maple syrup and he he did his farming and raised four girls and that was a lot of work and i was just telling somebody yesterday that came to get a few bales of hay. The work that my father did over the years, I can't, I mean, I've done a lot of work and so have other people, but I can't even, I, I saw my father work and it was unbelievable, the physical work that he was able to do. He didn't have, like I say, he didn't have the bale kicker. He didn't have 
gutter cleaners and all that physical work that he had to do every day when he had the cows. And then it was the early 60s when a lot of things were going to change with the Board of Health. You had to have different drains for humans, water, um, a lot of things, a light bulb for every six cows. And he couldn't afford it because he, he did everything when he had the money, but he didn't get a lot of money ahead either. So he uh, decided he had to sell the cows, and, and but the farm still sustained him through the maple syrup, and, and he sold some lumber out of the forest and did some things, and then he also got a job at the... Uh, school district driving a school bus so so again he was taken care of and led to where he needed to be next well i want to go both backwards and forwards from the fascinating things you've just told us i'd like to go backwards a little um to when your parents were first married or soon after, because I think I remember your father telling me there were no electric lights and that that bothered your yeah, mother my, and he yeah, my, he yeah. yeah, my mother my mother was a Schenectady, city of Schenectady girl, and she grew up with electricity and lights all around and people near. And she came out here in March of 1940. It would have been their 80, 81st wedding anniversary this month. And he, she came out with him in 1940. How did no they meet? How, how did they meet each other? Uh, my father's cousin uh, went to the Calvary Baptist Church in Schenectady, and there was a youth group there. And his cousin Marion invited him to um, come to the youth group meeting. It was young adults, more like they were. I think my father was, my mother was 22 when they got married. My father was nine, uh, 20, just 20. So, yeah, it was more like young adults. And so anyway, that's how they met. They, he came up to my cousin, his cousin's youth group meeting and met my mother there because she went to the church that his cousin went to. So. so a city girl fell in love and moved to the country. Yes, I guess so. And so she moved out here with no electricity or lights. And she told me in adult life that it was a little lonely at first, but, you know, she got she got busy, and then the phone came so she could be in touch with people more. But it was quite a shock to her to move out here, and there were no, I mean, at the time, there were six houses on this whole road. Now there's 80-some. And and to look down through the valley, there were no lights. I mean, there wasn't a light. And, and what light would be, there would have been kerosene lanterns. It wasn't, you know, it was not the city. Yeah. <laughs> you're not the, you, you know how the saying goes, you're not in the country anymore. Well, she wasn't in the city anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but they they raised the four kids. And, but well, just and, uh, backing up on the no lights, what I remember your father telling me was, and you had just mentioned Montgomery Wards and these family trips, is um, he got, I think, for like $18, uh, a six-volt wind generator that was on sale. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, he but, climbed up yeah, with this heavy, heavy, I don't know, 75-pound yeah. generator to the mm-hmm. top of the barn and, you know, mm-hmm. put it up there so his wife could have well, that's lights. How, that's how my father was. You know, he, he cared about people in a quiet way. And, and part of part of that wind generator was, was his own ingenuity like he wanted to. You know, he was a, he wasn't an inventor, so to speak, but he, 
you know, he saw an idea and he played on it like a lot of the older people had to do back then to get ahead a little bit. And plus seeing how my mother, you know, was so used to things and that's what he did. He went and he did it for her to get that and, and saw how pleased she, and she was pleased. She told me about that. She do and so all of a sudden they didn't have to have the ice box, the literal ice box. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so they and that but only it, it worked as I'm recalling the story it didn't run 24-7. I mean, it was like a charged, and then she could have this or that. And, of course, it was it was still a ringer washing machine and that kind of thing. But it was, you know, a big improvement, that generator. <laughs> yeah. So now going forward, we went backwards, and now I want to catapult forward from what you were saying earlier. Your father, to supplement his farm income, got a, dry, a job as a school bus driver. Is that right? Yes, he drove. He um, worked on the town of Westlow Highway for a little bit, and then he went to uh, drive a school bus at Burnock Westerlo, and he loved that a lot. He we really enjoyed that job, and and uh, but at the same time, he would be making maple syrup and and uh, doing. And we always cut hay, and we're cutting hay to this day. But it's uh, it wasn't enough to sustain the family, you know. So he he went and drove the school bus and. So what is it he loved about that? What did he love about driving the school bus? Well, he, he being being growing up in the country, you know, socialization, like we all just witnessed with this pandemic, we were isolated from seeing people. And it you didn't realize you were isolated back in the day until you got out there and started being with people. <laughs> and, and he loved the sociability and and. I I also worked at the Burnock Westlake bus garage at the time, and we were like family over there. There were there weren't too many of us. I think there might have been max twenty, and uh, everybody knew each other. It was you know, and and he uh, he he just liked the job. He was home during the middle of the day, so he could do some things on the farm, and he you know he just enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, that's neat. Well, now I want to go backwards in time again. If you could just tell us what it was like for you and your sisters, uh, just kind of a typical day in the life of being on a farm as you were growing up. Just tell us some of the things that were hard or some of the things that were pleasurable or, you know, just Mm -hmm. kind of a day in the life. If you could give us a description of that, it would be great. Well, I could only speak, of course, for my sisters, We or for myself, not my sisters, but uh, we were quite spaced in age. My older sister, who's deceased now, she was almost eight years older than me, and uh, my next sister is six years younger than me, and I guess the other one's about eight years younger. So we were kind of in a different category. I mean, we were in different not decades old, but different age bracket. Mm -hmm. And like, by the time, by the time my older sister left home at 18, I was only 10, you know, so it was just different. But from, from my perspective, I, I just, I thank God that I grew up there and it was that kind of life. And and I, now that I'm alone, I, I really draw on those memories. And yes, there were some harder times. I couldn't have this or I couldn't have that, or I had to wait for this or wait for that. But you know what? That's what we need. We need patience and perseverance these days. And, uh, my one of my well I'll tell you a couple of my strongest memories I was telling this the other day to somebody when I when we were younger we used to get free passes to the Altamont Fair 
um, in the mail. And so when school got out in June, those passes would come in the mail in July, and or we'd get them at school. Sometimes I guess they passed them out to us at school. And I can remember many days, I'm out there. Are you almost done, Dad? Are you almost done? What what time can we go? <laughs> but he had to milk the cows, you see. This was in the 50s. And he was milking cows and, and doing the hay. And lots of times we didn't get to the fair until 5, 6 o'clock at night. <laughs> so we had to learn to wait a little bit. And many a Christmas morning, my face would be pressed up against the window watching the barnyard to see what time Dad would be coming in so we could open our presents because Ma always said we had to wait till Daddy come in you know <laughs> and uh but uh it, i always i always enjoyed it. there wasn't a there wasn't a sunday that we didn't go somewhere to a family member or a pleasure thing or someone came to the farm and had dinner and there were very many impromptu impromptu meals prepared i could remember one time we went to a, a um, an aunt aunt sarah way over in in uh pascal boa and um of course, she didn't call then. You just showed up, and she killed a chicken, and she made a pie, and did the whole thing And our, while we were there to make the meal. And sometimes I think, Melissa, I look back, and how can I be that old that I remember these kind of <laughs> prehistoric, prehistoric things? <laughs> but uh, it's uh, I, I, uh, I had to do without. My father and mother were not rich people, and uh, but. It's fine because I've been taken care of and I'm, I grew up learning that you have to work for what you get and, uh, you just it's it's been a good life i i wouldn't have traded it for anything <laughs> it sounds like it i'd love to explore some of the things you just said tell me about the altamont fair back in the day you know here you were a school kid and getting this free pass and eager to go and once you got there what was it like did you spend your time with the farm animals or did you spend your time well, on yeah. the midway <laughs> or how how well, tell was, us about yeah. the fair back in the day i was I was just going to say, we, <laughs> we had parked down by the cattle barns, of course, and we headed for the tractor um, exhibits. And uh, then eventually we did make it to the midway and the concessions. But no, the, it was went from the farm to the farm exhibits, you know. But that was that was the life back then. I I remember going to the flower exhibit was always one of the favorite things that my mother and I enjoyed in the flower building. I don't know if that's still there or not. But it is. Uh, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's but when the grand when the grandstand got demolished, that changed that whole fair to. A lot. There was that bee. Some people might remember the exhibit there where they had the bee farmer had the bee frame there. We were. My father also raised had bees, and we used to cut honey trees in the woods. We used to go out and get wild wild um, wild honey. And uh, my father was always interested in talking with that man. And that was that was a lot. I I spent a lot of time with my father going to different places like he'd go when he would do thrashing or different things for the neighbors I'd go and then I have a, I have a lot of, of what do I want to say replacement grandmothers and the, the, had them in the town and, and I'd go with him and then like I'd sit in the kitchen or something with the wife there was and go strawberry picking one of the neighbors one of the neighbors 
she's long gone now too, but she was like a grandmother to me. We used to go wild strawberry picking when my father would be up in the back cutting hay. He'd say, there's Ella. Why don't you go, why don't you go pick berries with her? And like, <laughs> it was a different lifestyle. Now we don't even know all of our neighbors, do we? No, that's what I'm getting from these wonderful reminiscences. Just the tremendous sense of community both in the oh, terms of the work, you know, the interaction, your father doing the shearing for others and the threshing yeah. for others, and then yeah. you as his child being part of this kind of communal, like we always hear um, with the Haudenosaunee, you know, the Native American, uh, sometimes yeah. called Iroquois, yeah. how, how, you know, the modern phrase people use from Africa is it takes a village to raise a child. But it seems like, you know, you had that kind of experience yourself. If you could just oh, absolutely. talk a little yeah, about that's that. How it was. Yeah, that's how it was. And friends of mine that I went to school with, we, we get, when we get together, we talk about how there was a, a friend of mine down in Wesso, his father had a farm and we talk about how that kind of stuff went on. And, oh yeah, there was, like I say, there was a community. And then of course there was another part, Part of entertainment was the the farm bureau meetings when you had covered dish suppers and things you know like that. But uh, no, it was definitely a sense of community. My father, my grandfather, like I say, he was the trustee for the schools at that time, and was a deacon in his church. My father served as a deacon in his church, and and um, was community minded a little bit in politics, not too much, but uh, and then taught taught the sent my mother. My mother played the organ at the Southburn Church, and I mean they were farm farm things, but yet still poor as they were, so to speak. They reached out to the community. You know, they were involved, and the, my father was my father was very active in all that. And then, of course, with the maple surfing in the seventies and eighties and early nineties, many many hundreds of school kids came: Boriesville, Ravina. Uh, Schenectady, Burnox, they came to see the maple syrup process as they did with the other farmers on the hill too, the Gibbs Farm and different places. But they, uh, you know, we're always involved with the community and people. Well, when you've been here a hundred years, they know where you, they know where it is. So, <laughs> yeah, that's mm-hmm. just wonderful. Well, tell us about. The generation yours, in other words, you and your husband Mm. built this house um, that was part of what was the farm and raised your own daughters there. And um, uh, my father stopped shipping milk in the 60s. And the first time that he kind of noticed that maybe his health was failing, he was 72 and well, uh, I'm not embarrassing him because he's not here, but the other people that were making syrup around the bus, I was driving bus at the time, and a couple people said, oh, the staff's running really good today. And so I came home, and my husband and I went up to check it, and there was hardly any. And bottom line was my father had developed Parkinson's disease, and he uh, didn't have the strength. And he, he told me, he said, I he said I, I knew when I was tapping him, I, he said, I probably should have told you. He said, I I don't think I put them in tight enough. So my husband and I, it was late, the late 80s, I guess, we uh, kind of 
you know, we assisted him to, he wanted to keep the farm going. It was his love. In fact, I think he told you one time in an article that he hopped up on the tractor and he said about if he's going to die, he wants to die on the tractor. Yeah, he did say that. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, so we, but we helped him keep it going as long as, you know, he could. And one day he, he ended up with the Parkinson disease and then he had, he had emphysema, and uh, he did smoke when he was younger, but the doctors told him that his condition of his lung was primarily from farmer's lung, and that comes from, like, the silage, you know, the silage fumes mm-hmm. and the, the, the grain chaff and things mm-hmm. like that. But anyway, so one day he was sitting in the living room looking out the window, and we had come in from blowing the snow and things, and he said, I... My eyelids were all crystallized with snow and ice, and he says, I wish I could be out there doing it instead of you. And I looked at him, and I said, so do I. (laughs) (laughs) But we had that kind of rapport, you know. We, I mean, I was was close to my father, and I, I loved my father and mother both, but it was just... My father and I understood each other, so to speak, I guess, you know, and uh, I said, so do I. And, and I did mean it, too, Melissa. I meant it. <laughs> yeah. I, wish he could, I didn't have to do it, but I did it. So. Oh, that's just and, a wonderful story. And yeah. then, and then uh, so as time progressed, he, he passed away at 84. And uh, at that time, it was just, you know, we were cu- still cutting the hay and things, and but there was no more cattle or, or chickens or anything like that. But and so now that I'm alone and I've been for four years with the with the help of some friends and neighbors, I we kept it going for these four years, but it's kind of hard, but two hands don't do as much as four. So Mm. the farming aspect is going to kind of have to come to a halt. And I hope to teach my grandchildren, all 11 of them, that uh, to make maple syrup and, and carry on the legacy of the farm for another hundred years, perhaps. But uh, it's the, the farming aspect has to come to an end because I have five daughters and none of them are agriculturally minded. So <laughs> it's uh, it's can't do it alone. So that's that's what's happening. But the the farm will be there. I keep the buildings as good a repair as I can, and things go on. But. Uh, all things come to an end, that kind of thing. But it's not an end. I don't want to say that. No, it's not. It's just that it's been a hundred years, and I look back at the phases of my grand, my grandfather, in the 1920s and 30s. He was a very he worked with Dandy and Bess as horses, and then my father finally got his tractor. But he didn't do anything real big. I mean, he wasn't. He he thought small, so he didn't have to go in debt and and like that. And but he sufficed. And he one time he bought a in the seventies he bought a new hay bind, and uh, they came in seven foot and nine foot. And uh, somebody said to him about why did you buy the seven foot when Clayton? He said, the nine foot makes a big difference that extra two feet. And he said, well, if I'd have done that, I would have had to go around and make all the bar gaps bigger so I could have gotten through. Mm. <laughs> And he just—he always had a dry sense of humor too, and 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 then he he farmed it. That was the peak of the farming. I don't know much about the history before our family. I know that the deed said it was belonged to a Vincent, and uh, but I don't know. They were probably just—I don't know. I'm assuming, but probably just a small 
small. My father cleared a couple set of the fields that are the bigger fields now. He cleared them with a horse, horse and plows and rope, pulled trees out and pulled trees out and plowed the, and tilled the ground up. I've got pictures of my father behind the horse and plow, and uh, he he was always proud of the fact that he cleared that one field off. It was all it was an orchard field, and he cleared it all off to be hay. And that's another thing I wanted to mention about the tradition of the farm back in the back in the 80s we started doing farm day and we did it in september october the end of the harvest and look we we put my mother and we we get on a wagon and all the kids and we take a ride around the farm and look at the look at what we had done that year and made a few plans for the next year and and it was just became a tradition and we still do it to this day but we try to do it on columbus day weekend and uh last few years it's been more of memories of what we have done than progression but maybe there will be progression we don't know but uh, i just see the progression of the hundred years and it uh, it seems like the plateau of it all was about at the 50 year mark you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it was like my because my father didn't have a big huge business but that was when this farm was the most active with so many different the news of things it was the syrup and the hay and the cows and the school bus driving and all of that went on you know and it's uh, it's been well, a good life it's, it's the old classic movie it's a good life well it is a good life <laughs> well i so appreciate your sharing these memories a hundred year anniversary is certainly something <laughs> worth celebrating and even though as you say your own children aren't you know, agricultural minded, they still have, I'm sure, within them those same kinds of ethics and lessons that you mm-hmm. yourself well, learned they, about hard work and self reliance. And yeah, well, they're they're all professionals, and they they like riding the four wheelers. And my grandchildren, especially my grandsons, they they love riding the four wheelers and go. We we had a ball a couple times, two days this winter. It was very conducive to sleigh riding over across the street on that one field and oh we had such a good time and the second the first day my daughters the kids didn't seem to mind but my daughter said oh that's a long walk back up that field up that hill mm-hmm. so the, the second day that we did it i took the bucket loader with the tractor and then i i rode him back up oh <laughs> and that my was, gosh that was much better <laughs> oh that's service oh my gosh and that, and that and that came from a memory too of the the Brayman farm down on 85 years ago we used to have a bunch of us families again it was a community and we had they riding and Gordon was a, a logger and he had the bulldozer so he took our he took the toboggans up to the back of the bulldozer and bring us back up the hill and that was good <laughs> yeah that is good yeah. well yeah. thank you so much do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners about you or the farm or yeah. Well, I just I when when we spoke about doing a little story about the farm, I it's it's not it's not my praise. I just feel I feel like well, I feel that the Lord puts you where you're supposed to be, and and that's the way it is. But I just want the community to realize too that you know there are a lot of longevity people up here too that have been here, and while things change a lot, the the older I don't know how to put it really the like. There's not there's not a lot of agriculture up here anymore. I I think there's one of the Snyder Farm, and I know the Boone Farm had 50 years, 
um, if Phil Stewart was still there, that would have been a hundred year farm. But um, there's very little, very little of that longevity up here anymore. And uh, it's uh, it's been good to see how the town evolves too. The different neighbor, like I said earlier. There were very few houses on this road, and one day my husband and I years ago took a ride and counted. There was over 80 houses on between Woodstock Road, Filkins Hill, and Remley Lane and Grippy Lane. There were uh, over 80 houses, and when I grew up, they were all, those side roads were just gravel driveway, so to speak, barely passable roads, and now it's all developed, so... It's uh, it's been good though. When I'm my husband, if my husband was still here, we'd be doing a lot more than we were doing. But uh, that's the way it is. <laughs> so I just wanted to share with the community, and and you you did such a good write up on my father before that uh, I thought maybe there would be some interest to know yes, that well, in the family a hundred years. I think it's just fascinating. It it captures. Uh a way of life and a really important American tradition. Mm-hmm. So thank you so I much. Could, I could go on and on. I could go on and on with hundreds of other stories. Of course, <laughs> I've been here for 70 plus of the year of the hundreds. So <laughs> I saw, especially with the groups of school children coming, that was, that was an exciting time when they came and they were so interested in it too. And the teachers in the different districts, you know, and one, one time there was a, a woman from the city who came out and she'd never been out here before and I said about digging some potatoes for the meal and she said, oh good she, she was a grown woman she said oh good she said I do they grow on trees she said I never knew how a potato grew <laughs> And, and I kind of looked at her. I thought she was teasing me, but then yeah, she's a lovely woman. But it's just that I can't believe that an adult got to didn't get to know where a potato grew. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is an yeah. impressive. Well, we have many, come. Yeah. We have become so far from our agricultural roots. You know. Yeah, I think yeah. people. Well, and again, and even though we aren't officially open to tours or anything, if anybody has any interest in farming or the history of farming, they're welcome to stop by the Barber Barber Bellevue Farm. My mother named the farm because she came from when she was in, they called it PG, postgraduate school, which would be like a junior college today. She took, she majored in French. And one day we decided we needed to name the farm. And we could see, like I say, the Catskills and Windham Mountain and such a view. And we were sitting on the porch and she said, I think we should call it Bellevue, B-E-L-L-E, Bellevue, meaning beautiful view. And, oh, uh, so what a wonderful how, name. Is that all one word, Bellevue? Yeah, the Bellevue. Bell, uh, well, Bell is in quotes, you know, B-E-L-L-E and then V, V-I-E-W. Bellevue, so two separate words, view. Bellevue, yeah. beautiful view. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Isn't that lovely? So even, though, even though she was a city girl, she had her hand in the farm, too. She named it. <laughs> 